0: All right. We'd like you to take your Bibles at this time and turn along with us to Romans chapter six and verse one. Romans chapter six and verse one. I have often said that the book of Romans is really the Bible within the Bible. It capsulizes things and gives you a glimpse of time past and time present and the future time. And so whenever we bring someone to a saving knowledge of Christ, you should not direct them to the gospel according to John, which is written in accordance with prophecy, but rather it would be better to direct them to the book of Romans, because it is here that we learn that justification is by faith. And after the apostle leaves off with the great doctrines of justification and sanctification and glorification, he then gradually transitions into the importance of living a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm convinced that there are many in the grace movement who have a superb knowledge of the word rightly divided. You can tell they are rooted and grounded in the faith and have a knowledge of the will of God. But I am not equally convinced that they are making a consistent application of that in their Christian life. Not only would God have us understand the doctrines of grace, but he would also have us live them. There must be an outworking of them in our lives. And that is the message that we would like to bring to you this day from Romans chapter 6, how to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at this message from three different vantage points. I have deemed it so important that as I've traveled around the country, I've shared this message in churches in from city to city and town to town. I've preached probably 20 times this year from Romans chapter 6, because I feel it's so essential. So as we touch on this message, how to live a godly life, we're going to do so from three different vantage points. First of all, we're going to answer a question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then we're going to move on to understand more fully what it means to be identified with Christ. And then, finally, the importance of yielding our members as instruments of righteousness. Many, many years ago, out east, there was a very godly evangelist who had been asked to come to a certain city to preach Christ and Him crucified and he agreed to do so, and he held a whole week of meetings. And the last night in particular, he stood up and he proclaimed the word boldly in the power of the Spirit, and many, many were touched by the gospel that evening. So much so that after the evangelist sat down, the pastor arose and he addressed the congregation that he wanted to leave a time of testimony open, that if someone had come to know Christ during the course of the week, or had trusted Christ that very evening, that they could have an opportunity to come forward and share their testimony, or if anyone wanted to come and share their testimony. Well, indeed, a number arose from their seats and came forward and shared how they had placed their faith in the finished work of Christ, and they were indebted to the evangelist who had so capably come and proclaimed the riches of God's grace. And there was a long pause, and suddenly a woman arose from near the back, and she made her way forward to the front of the auditorium. Now, this lady was very prominent in the community, and everyone in the congregation knew her. And they looked at her with amazement that she had come forward to give a testimony. And as she came forward, she began to share how she was saved earlier in the week. And it was not a result of the evangelist bringing forth the messages, although she acknowledged how her heart was blessed and lifted in to the heavenlies at his proclamation of the word. She said, no, I'm here tonight because of a godly woman by the name of Nellie. Nellie's worked for me as my housekeeper for nearly 25 years, she shared. She scrubbed my floors, she washed my dishes, she dusted all of my furniture, and she never missed one opportunity to tell me that I was a sinner and that I needed Christ as my personal Savior. And year after year, I just brushed her aside and wouldn't have anything to do with her concerning spiritual things, only to give her her instructions for the day of what I required of her. That was the contact that I had with her. But she kept sharing with me the importance and the need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one day... My little one was taken from me in a tragic accident, and no one in my family or none of my friends were able to console me. Only Nellie. Nellie came, and she sat down beside me on the couch one evening, and the tears were streaming down my face, and she put her arms around me, and she says, God loves you. Christ died for you. And you can see that little one again, that little one that was so precious to you, that one that ran around here and the toys I picked up. You can see him again, but you'll have to believe the gospel. And she shared the scriptures with me and she opened them. And earlier this week, I came to know Christ as my personal savior. It was not through the pastor or the evangelist. I was brought to Christ through this woman's godly example. She was the only Bible that I knew. And she's here tonight, and her fingers are riddled with arthritis, her back is arched, but she still has a radiant testimony. You know, as I ponder... That story, beloved ones, how is it that there are some among us who are so spiritually minded? How is it there are some among us that live a consistent, godly life in Christ Jesus? And why is it that there are some that struggle so with these things? Well, I think the answer is found right here in Romans chapter 6. God tells us what we have to do and what we have to apply from his word. And notice Paul begins out as he writes to the Romans. They were near and dear to his heart. He had not won them to Christ, although his ministry had an impact upon them, and he had hoped to visit them soon, and he had heard about their faith and how it was known throughout the world, the known world of that day. And as he writes to them, he asks them two questions. Notice he begins out with two questions. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now before we can answer those questions, we have to understand a little bit of the context in which they are set in. And so we must go back to the preceding chapter, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, and that will help us Understand why he is raising these questions. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, I call your attention, brethren, to verse 20 and the term abound. It has the idea of abundance. Now, we might liken it to a river that is swollen. And whenever I was a young boy coming up in Pennsylvania, I was raised along the Allegheny River, and I used to do a lot of fishing down at the river, and oftentimes after a rain, uh, the river would be pushing its banks, and the current was very, very swift as it came down into the bend of the river, because they would dredge that for sand and gravel. And uh, I had witnessed many lose their lives there. Some professional swimmers lost their lives there one day because they were just swept under by the current. And so the term uh, bound here has the idea of abundance, overflowing, if you please, its banks. And that's a picture of sin in the world. And sin is not a small thing. You know, I've had the privilege of preaching Christ all over this great country of ours. And I've been invited to speak many times at the Pacific Garden Mission down in Chicago, Illinois, Most of you will recognize that name. That's where the Unshackled broadcast originates from. And if you ever have an opportunity to be in Chicago and visit the Pacific Garden Mission, it's a real experience. It shows you the depths of sin in the world. Why, I've gone into that auditorium, and it's packed with four or five hundred men many of whom used to be former doctors and attorneys and prominent businessmen in Chicago. But because of alcoholism or drug abuse, they are living shipwrecked lives. And as I've taken their hand to shake it, oftentimes their arms will be exposed and you can see how all of their veins are collapsed. It's a sad commentary on the human race. The wages of sin is death. But notice that the apostle doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 20 to say, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that phrase in the Greek, much more abound, has the idea to superabound. And we would see that oftentimes in the spring as the ice jams on the river would begin to melt and before they built the dam up in Catanning, the waters would oftentimes overflow the banks of the river and the railroad tracks and even overflow to the point where the water was up on the highways. And so you have abundance overcoming abundance. And that's a picture of the grace of God in the world. His grace has superabounded. And now that explains Paul's two questions. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Apparently, there were some at Rome who were living habitually in sin as believers in Christ. And Paul concludes that ought not to be you're saved, you're washed in the blood, you're forgiven, you're dead to sin, you've been crucified in Christ. Therefore, you no longer need to live in sin. And that's what he is going to take up by way of subject matter as we move through these passages. He's going to teach us how to have the victory over sin in our lives. It does not need to control us. And notice in verse 3 that he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, I call your attention to that word baptized. It has the idea of identification. Now, that's important for this reason. Most, when they see the term baptism, equate that with water. But baptism does not mean water. You'll recall when John the Baptist came on to scene that he came baptizing with water. Well, did he water with water? No, that's not the sense at all. Rather, he identified Israel with water for the cleansing of their sins and their induction into the priesthood. And so every time you see that term baptism, you need to think identification. Just insert it, and it will greatly assist you in your knowledge of the Scriptures. For this reason, you'll remember that Christ was going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. That means on the day of Pentecost, they were identified with the Spirit of God and empowered to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection, performing signs and miracles and wonders. He speaks of the baptism of fire concerning the unbeliever. In the future day of judgment, they're going to be identified with fire and cast into the lake of fire. And when we come to Paul's gospel, he says there's one Lord, one faith, One baptism, he's referring to a spiritual baptism. We are identified with Christ. So here then, in verse 3, Paul is taking up the subject of identification. Now, we want to pause here to say this. We have been identified with Adam, and we have been identified with Christ. Now, having said that, we want to see what the identification of each of these brings to us. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 5 a moment and verse 12. Here in Romans 5 and verse 12, the apostle says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Here the Apostle Paul addresses Adam and our identification with him. You will recall how God had created man in the beginning, and he brought man into the garden, the garden of Eden, a perfect environment. And in the course of time, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he brought all of the animals of his creation before him, to name them. Now, remember, Adam was one of those individuals that we would classify, quote-unquote, an, an original thinker. And he named all of the beasts of the field. So it shows to us that he was not an imbecile, but rather created in the image of God. And he was a very intelligent being. Think if you were given that job today to name all the beasts of the field. It would be a mighty task indeed, wouldn't it? But Adam gave them their names, the names that we use of those animals even yet down to this very hour. But there was another reason why God brought all of those beasts of the field before him. It was to show that there was no help fit for for him in the animal kingdom. And God opened his side, and he took one of his ribs, and he created the woman. And the woman was to be a help fit. She is the one of beauty and grace and refinement, because, you see, she's doubly refined dust. Man was created from the dust in the beginning, and if the woman is taken from the man... She is more refined than the man. She is the one of beauty and grace and poise. And God put our first parents in the garden, and he told them they could eat of all the trees of the garden except of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was one tree they were not permitted to partake of. And so there was plenty, and Adam was to safeguard, and he was to watch over his wife. He was the caretaker of the garden. And I think he was divinely appointed to watch over not only the garden and the animal creation, but his wife as well, because God knew something. Lucifer had fallen, and now there was an enemy. And so when God came into the garden in the cool of the day, both he and Adam enjoyed a very precious communion for a short period of time. But in the course of time, the serpent entered the garden, as we know the story. And I think at that point the serpent was probably in an upright position because after it is cursed, then it is sentenced to slither along the ground. And as he was in the upright position, he spoke. Now, serpents don't have the capacity of speaking. Rather, it was being used. And Satan was speaking through the serpent to our first parents. And he tempted them. And indeed, he drew Eve in to the, the temptation. She wanted to know the difference between good and evil. And this fruit looks very delicious. Why shouldn't we part, partake of it? And so, as we know, she partook. And she gave to her husband. Now, usually it's depicted Adam out there in the field watering the camels and the elephants. That wasn't the case at all. You look at the scriptures closely, and Adam was standing right there beside his wife. But when he reached for that fruit... While she was overtaken and deceived in the transgression, Adam wasn't. When he was reaching for that fruit, we were reaching for that fruit. Because, you see, we are his posterity. Just as I was in my father, and my father was in my grandfather, and my grandfather was in his great-grandfather, we can trace our roots all the way back to Adam. And as only God could see, he saws all, the whole human race, in Adam. And when Adam was reaching for that forbidden fruit, we were reaching for that forbidden fruit. We have sinned in Adam. He is our federal head. And put to his charge. Nevertheless, Cain died. Well, if sin was not imputed to him because there was no law, how could death claim him? Because he had sinned in Adam. And it also helps us to explain why those little ones that come forth from the womb, as precious as they are, just coming forth in that new life, sometimes is snuffed out by death. And our hearts break and we mourn the passing of this little one. Well, how is it that death can claim them? Why, they're innocent in the sense that they have never sinned. They're not to the age of accountability. It's because, you see, they have sinned in Adam. That's how death could claim them. And so, our identification with Adam has introduced us to sin and iniquity and death. Now, let me say this about death. I don't think sometimes as we go to the scriptures, we fully comprehend what we mean by death in the word of God. We oftentimes take the world's definition and apply it to spiritual truth, and that's dangerous to do that. Death in the word of God always means separation without exception. If you take physical death, that is the separation of the soul and the spirit from these natural bodies. And so the life is continuing on. The soul and spirit continue. And so we can see that the soul and spirit survive the death of the body. So death is not cessation of existence. Rather, it is stepping out of this life Into the next. When we talk about spiritual death, that means those who come forth from the womb, who are in Adam, are separated spiritually from God. And not until the gospel is preached unto them and they are saved can they be enlightened to the truth of God's Word. They must first be regenerated. And then finally, eternal death which is the eternal separation from God as those who reject Christ will be consigned to the lake of fire. So death always means separation. And so Adam, as we are identified with him, not only are we in danger of physical death, but we're in danger of spiritual death and in danger of... ...of the eternal judgment to come. So that's what Adam has done for you. It's not a pretty picture. But now as we come over to Romans chapter 6 and verse 3... ...we learn that we have been identified with another man. And that man is Christ Jesus... Notice in verse 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So we learn from verses 3, 4, and 5 that we've been identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now when he was hanging on that cross, as we have explained the definition of death, to you how is it that he could be dying now you need to think about that for a moment that's an eternal question for this reason for the 33 and a half years or so that christ was upon the earth death quite literally had to stand afar off it could not lay its icy grip upon our savior because he knew no sin. There was no guile found within him. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He had kept the law of God to the letter. He was perfect and righteous in all ways. But then, how is it that he's hanging there at the end of his ministry on that cross, dying in shame and disgrace? Oh, brethren, he wasn't dying for his sins. He knew no sin. He was dying for your sins. Your sins. And your sins. And yours. And yours. And yours. And mine. You see, God the Father did something wonderful. He took our sins and iniquities and laid them upon his Son that we might be redeemed back to God. That his righteousness, that is the righteousness of Christ, might be imputed to us. And that's associated here with the great work of identification. It's only taught here in Paul's epistles. We've been identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So what that means is that our old man has been crucified with Christ. Now, as you study your scriptures, you read about the flesh, you read about the old nature... You read about the old man. I think those are all synonymous terms. It refers to our identification with Adam, that we are sinners in word, thought, and deed. So our old man has been crucified with Christ, and it has been put to death. Now, I call your attention to verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, let's take the alcoholic for a moment. I think probably everyone in this room has a family member, whether a close family member or a distant one, who has battled alcoholism. And they fought it, and they fought it, and they just can't overcome it. And sometimes there'll be a little sabbatical for six months or a year where it looks like they've made it. And lo and behold, if the draw of that sin isn't so, that it draws them right back into its clutches. And after 80 years, they've never been able to conquer that alcoholism. But you know, the day they die, they're freed from that sin. Now the point is this, as far as God sees it, if you died in Christ and the body of your sins was crucified with him, the point that Paul is making is this, you're dead to sin. You no longer need to continue therein. And I'm here to tell you this day that if you do continue in sin... It's of your own volition, because what Paul is saying here is you don't have to sin. True, we still have that old nature with us until death do us part, but Paul is saying you can have the victory over sin by simply applying and acknowledging you've been crucified in Christ and you're dead in sin, and you want to walk in newness of life. And in verse 4, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, I've conducted hundreds of funerals. I've lost track of how many I've had over the years. But one thing I've noticed about them all is that we don't bury people who are living. We only bury the dead. And the analogy Paul is following through here with is our old man is crucified with Christ and it has been placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb forever. And then God has resurrected our new man, created in holiness and righteousness. So you have a new nature today if you're saved. You have an old nature and you have a new nature. The old nature only has the capacity of sinning. It cannot please God. You say, well, pastor, why there's men in the world that build hospitals and do many philanthropic things. Uh, Surely that's good. Well, that is good. And it's good in the sight of men. But that does not cause them to seek God. And it does not mean necessarily that that is well-pleasing unto God. And indeed it isn't because only those who come by faith can please him. It's impossible to please God without faith. As it says in the Proverbs, as Solomon says, even the plowing of their fields is sin. So that old man only has the capacity of sinning, but that new man has the capacity with the controlling power of the Holy Spirit to honor and glorify God, and thus we must walk therein. Now, as we drop down to verse 11, Paul tells us the importance of yielding our members as instruments of righteousness. Likewise, recking ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That portion right there indicates to me that there's a struggle going on within our members, between that old and that new nature. Now, some who are new in the faith confuse that and become troubled with it, thinking that when they sin, they've lost their salvation. Really, all it is, it's the conflict that's going on within their members. And as we grow in grace, what we want to do is strengthen that new man, that new nature that it becomes renewed day by day by the word of God. Now, an illustration that I have used in the past that helps illustrate this is the Eskimo up north. And this is a true story, by the way, I understand. And he had a group of huskies that he used to pull his sleds. And he brought two of them to town one day. One was black and one was white, and some of the townspeople were standing around there, friends of his, and he pointed to the black dog, and he said, I'm going to make these two dogs fight, and that black dog's going to win. Well, they kind of chuckled, thought this is amusing, and boy, those two dogs tied into one another, and sure enough, that black dog won. Boy, that white dog was flat out, and he had to carry him home practically. Well, he went back home, and a week later he came back, and He said, this week the white dog's going to win. Oh, boy, they were pulling out their wallets on this one. They thought, there's no way he's going to predict this two weeks in a row, and they were betting which one was going to win now. And, of course, they bet against him that he would know that that white dog was going to win. Well, sure enough, boy, those two dogs tied into one another, and that white dog won. Well, this went on for four or five weeks, and every week he picked which dog was going to win. And so one of his best friends, as they were leaving town, asked him, how do you always know which dog's going to win? Oh, it's very simple. He said, if I want the black dog to win, I feed it all week and I starve the white dog. And vice versa. And you know, brethren, that is the same way it is in our Christian life by way of practical illustration, isn't it? You feed that old man pornography and X-rated movies, and the music of this world system. And I'll tell you right now, you'll be a shallow Christian, and you won't have a concern over the spiritual things of the Lord. On the other hand, if you will deny yourselves of the things of this world system, possessions and other things, and have prominent in your life the word of God, and living by grace, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, taking this blessed book and pouring over it, not on Sunday morning for 45 minutes, but day after day after day, just submerging yourself in it. Because if you'll do that, you see, it will help cleanse the pollutions of your mind. It will help to build you up in the faith. And the stronger you become, the more spiritually minded you will become. All of us have had the experience, and this was the case in working with Pastor Stam. It was such a blessing because he was so spiritually minded. It was a joy being in his presence, and you hated to see him walk out of the room at the end of the day. And I'm sure you've had ones in your Christian lives that have impacted you like that. That when you walked away from them, you you felt uplifted. You were rejoicing. You felt like you were in the heavenlies for a little while. Well, why is it that they have such a good grasp on the Christian life? Why is it that they're so spiritually minded? I'll tell you why. They've made a plaque practical application of these things that we share with you this day. Notice Paul says, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign, that is, reign its king in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Remember, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us and we should walk accordingly. We should not be yielding these members as instruments of unrighteousness. Shall these lips that praise God, that preach His word, that seek to honor and glorify Him, shall these lips also be given to cursing and bitterness and filthy communication? It ought not to be but yet it is named among us in the Christian community. Oh, when the pastor comes around, everyone's on their best behavior. But I want to know how you're living when pastor isn't around. Don't you know that the Lord's around? Don't you know that the Lord is observing us and the angelic host is observing us night and day? You're never alone. You're in the company of a great multitude at all times. And we need to live accordingly. Shall these feet that walk in the ways of the Lord. Walk in the ways of mischief as well. And sin. Paul says it shouldn't be. Let your life be a symphony to God's glory. Because, you see, that's why we're here, isn't it? Do you know why you're here? It's not to fill space. It's not to gather as many possessions as you have, and as the old bumper sticker says, whoever has the most in the end wins. Probably just the opposite is true. Whoever has the most in the end is probably going to lose the most. You're here, according to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, to honor and glorify God. That's your purpose in life. And until you submit yourself to this truth of identification and to the truth that you're here to honor and glorify God, I'm here to tell you you'll never have fulfillment in the Christian life. You're going to flounder but we want better for you. We want you to stand up and be numbered with the saints. We need you in the grace movement. We need you to stand for this truth that others might hear. Many, as we're going to see tomorrow, begin well and they start that race. But where are they today? Now, I've been in the Lord's work 25 years, and I've seen many bright and rising stars, and I thought, boy, the Lord's going to use this this young man, or this grace pastor, or that capable teacher, and you know, I couldn't even tell you where they are today. So it shows you the importance of being consistent. Consistent. And if you will be consistent with the message of grace, God will bless you abundantly. And I'm thankful for the men and the women in my life who stood true to the gospel of the grace of God that I might have the opportunity to hear it and rejoice and be blessed by it. So you're a key component in all of this. Each one of you, you're one of the links in the chain. And we trust You will apply these things by God's grace. Because I'm convinced on your behalf, you can have victory over sin. Sin does not need to control your life. You don't need to live in sin. You don't have to habitually sin. Because you're dead to it. If that's the commentary on your life, then it's of your own accord. You have no one to blame but yourself. Because God's made the provision, giving you the opportunity to live above sin and the circumstances. But it's up to you at this point to apply these things by faith. True, that's positionally how God sees it, but he wants you to apply it practically in your Christian life. And you can. And remember that spiritually minded person that you were thinking about a moment ago in your own life? They've done it, so can you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank Thee for this time together with Thy Word. And Lord, as we've opened Romans 6 here around the country, we pray that it might touch the lives of men and women, that we might walk worthy of our calling. Lord, by thy help and by thy strength, we can live the victorious Christian life. And we pray for strength to do so, Lord. And we pray for this assembly and for Pastor and Mrs. Baker. My, how faithful they've been through the years to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And we pray, dear Lord, that thy continued blessing would be upon them as they minister in word and doctrine. And we pray for each and every one in this room. We're thankful for every member of the body of Christ, no matter where they're at spiritually. And it is our heart's desire before God that they might grow in grace, that they may see the importance of standing for this blessed truth, that others might not only come to Christ, but also into a knowledge of the revelation of the mystery. And we'll be careful to give thee all the honor and all the glory and the praise and the adoration. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.